When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Babbling Brooks edition. It's Wednesday, July 9th, 2014. On today's show, the movie Snowpiercer is both a $40 million action blockbuster and a seriously intended political allegory. Can it find an audience as significant as its message, not to mention its budget? Then Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi star as an elderly gay couple in the British TV import Vicious. And finally, the pundit David Brooks tells us we should all strive to be deep. Joining me today is Slate culture critic and editor of Outward, June Thomas. Hey, June. Hey, Stephen. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right. Well, digging in. Snowpiercer is a South Korean-American joint production blockbuster action film, oh boy, based on a French graphic novel. It's directed by Bong Joon-ho, director of The Host and Mother. This is his English language debut. Oh, and what a debut to combat global warming. Scientists released a chemical into the atmosphere that sunk the planet into a perpetual winter, the only survivors of which are aboard a massive train which loops the globe once every year. The supposed dregs of society are huddled in the rear of the train. The well-to-do live up front in affluent splendor. As pretty much everyone has noticed, this is a timely political allegory about the global 1%. It stars Chris Evans, known to American audiences as Captain America, and Song Kang-ho, who is pretty much the coolest man who ever lived, and uh, from the evidence of this movie at least, and uh, Tilda Swinton, who's uh, magnificent. Why don't we listen to a clip? Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. In the beginning, order was prescribed by your ticket. First class, economy, and free orders like you. Eternal order is prescribed by the sacred engine. All things flow from the sacred engine. All things in their place, all passengers in their section, all water flowing, all heat rising pays homage to the sacred engine in its own particular preordained position. So it is. Now, as in the beginning, I belong to the front. 
You belong to the tail. When the foot seeks the place of the head, a sacred line is crossed. Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. All right, well, Dana, the obvious place to start here is with you, the Slate film critic. What did you think of this movie? Well, I think it succeeds very, very well on the level of a, of a summer adventure movie, and I had tons of fun in it and appreciated that it also brought a lot of, as you say, political al- allegory and thoughtfulness to the table. I don't know that I think it's quite the masterpiece that some critics have thought it was, maybe because I was expecting so much because this director, Bong Joon-ho, is just you know one of those sort of global rarities who makes a different, completely different and brilliant movie every time he makes a movie. So for him to make his first English language movie and kind of international release that is seen outside of art houses was very exciting to me. And I'm not quite sure, especially when it comes to the end, which we won't spoil, but hopefully we can talk about obliquely somehow. I don't think this movie quite lived up to uh, to the, the sights that it set for itself. Um, and I know June really disliked it, so I, I'm curious to hear her. Oh, no, I didn't dislike the movie, but I did dis. I both admired greatly and absolutely hated with a huge burning passion Tilda Swinton's little bit, her, her Yorkshire bit. Uh, but I, I kind of love the movie. Really? Okay, so the thing that you were expressing loathing about is Tilda only. Can you take take a little bit of time to explain that? And we should also maybe explain a little about her character. Right. Well, so her character is kind of, I guess, the rule follower. She's somebody who lives in the front of the train, so that's the posh bit. And she comes back to the sort of grumbling, rebellious tail end to kind of just remind them of their place. Everybody has a place. Everyone should keep their place. She's a factotum almost, right? She seems like this this bureaucrat bearing yeah. the message of, of the powers that be. Yeah, absolutely. She She's the woman who... who who just believes completely in the rules. I think in another version of this story, she would probably be a vicar or a priest or something, you know. So she's she's that person. And so the the the, the and we know that Tilda Swinton is an amazing beauty. She, in this film, she's kind of made to be very plain, quite unattractive. She's also given for some just vague reason, I suppose, beyond laughs to be charitable some horrible false teeth, which are also flawed. So why exactly you would wear false teeth that have kind of a like a, a flaw in them? I'm not really quite sure why she's made to take out her teeth. I have no, no understanding of. And worst of all, she speaks with this Northern accent, which Northern English accent, which, yes, she's great. She's magnificent. She's really kind of, in a way, the star of the movie. But I hate that. I love that Bong Joon-ho introduces humor into his action films. And I think that's fantastic. I wish more people would do it. But why do we have to have a plain northern woman with bad teeth be this figure of humor? And I also don't know really where it comes from, except maybe Tilda Swinton, because I can't believe a South Korean and Kelly Masterson, who's an American from New Jersey, would want to do some British, you know, anti-Northern thing. I, I know you said... In Can a, I respond? Can yes. we go down the road of yes. Tilda Swinton's accent? Because I happen to know something about that, because the screening I saw of Snowpiercer had Bong Joon-ho and Kelly Masterson, not Tilda Swinton, unfortunately, but John Hurt, uh, um, not the Korean star, but someone else who was in the movie. Anyway, a nice little panel from the movie. And they told a story that Tilda Swinton told on set. Apparently, Bong's sets are these very, um, you know, Robert, Robert Altman-like sort of improvisatory places, which is crazy when you consider that what they're making is this highly choreographed summer blockbuster. But he very much encourages people to go down their own creative road and follow their own process and come up with their characters. And so she thought of the way that character would look and costumed her and based the Yorkshire accent on her nanny, her nurse from when she was a little girl who she loathed. Right. So and, the, and this I, villain she imagined was essentially her bad mother kind of projected onto herself. Right. And I, I, I heard that in your spoiler special, a great spoiler special that Dana did with Forrest Whitman ah, about this you. movie. Fun to discuss. But 
I still hate it with a passion because I just think I just think that humor. I mean, I know you shouldn't try to sort of, you know, strategize. You shouldn't police humor, but I hate when humor goes down when it points down instead of pointing up. And especially in a film like this, that's about you know income inequality and social inequality and lack of social mobility. That the person that you make fun of is somebody who in the real world, northern, plain northern women with bad teeth really don't have any power in the world. And because she was such a comic grotesque to me that it's funny she didn't invoke a social type. But of course, as a Brit, she right, would. as a northern woman with bad teeth, perhaps also maybe just <laughs> ever so slightly, you know, close to the bone. But I just, as, as I said, it's just like, it set me off. And why did she have to take the bloody teeth out? It made me crazy. But I realize this is probably not the very centerpiece of the film. Sidebar for the June Thomas Dental <laughs> Podcast. What about you, Steve? You haven't reacted to the movie yet. Um, I uh, I liked the movie. I Well, let's start with uh, Tilda Swinton's uh, performance and, and the teeth and the accent. I'm, um, I wasn't able to, uh, like June is, able to class specify it. But what made me uncomfortable about it is a remarkable performance. It's a tour de force. But what made me uncomfortable about it was how much sadism it inspired in the other characters in the movie who who totally credibly and totally justifiably hate her. Um, I was dismayed by how much sadism it inspired in me. I mean, I just wanted this person's head on a spike. And, um, uh, you know, quite a lot of the energy of the movie, I mean, it's unusual for that aspect, most unusual for that aspect, it is a completely unmistakable, totally pointed political allegory about the 1% and the 99%, especially in a global context. You know, the most interesting thing about the movie is when they finally, and this is to absolutely blow no surprises, but when they finally bust up further along the train, they start to go through the various worlds that each car on the train represents. And you feel as though you're breaking through successive levels of, you know, income quintiles globally, right? So you end up in these ultra swank, one completely, you know, one more magnificent, you know, each environment a more a magnificent one than the last. It's just completely in your face that this is about how much those who have now have. According to the logic of this political allegory, what kind of a police force it takes to preserve those rights to consume uh, and keep them separate from the you know, increasing masses of people who don't have. I mean, in a way, this is the movie we keep asking for, which is just to inject some degree of consciousness and thought into these action blockbusters. But Dana, I'm curious, did we, you know, be careful what you wish for? Is is it almost packed to the gills with this, you know, uh, allegorical meaning? I mean, it is, it is certainly a a packed cornucopia of a movie, right? It's full of ideas. It's full of images. We haven't talked much about the look and sound of the movie, but it is incredibly visually, what would you call it, stimulating, lush. You know, it provides many different environments, as Steve was saying, and incredible opportunities for production design and a certain kind of production design that ties very closely into the theme of the movie, right? This train that they're riding in is not a realistic vehicle. I mean, it circles the earth, including the oceans, exactly one time per year. It's kind of a calendar and a clock and a train at the same time. It's this mythic space. You know, so that allows for all kinds of imaginative possibilities of creating the train. I think the problem for me was not the overstuffedness. I, I enjoyed the experience of being smitten and smoted by this movie. But 
something about the allegory at the end. I'm not actually sure what this movie is trying to say about revolution. And it very right. clearly is sort of a Marxist revolution that it imagines, right? And then mm-hmm. at the end, without giving anything away, there's kind of a bifurcation of goals on behalf of these this group of rebels that's moving to the front of the train. What kind of revolution do they want to effect, right? Sort of to, on the order of, you know, are we overturning the social order? Are we maintaining it? Are we creating a new one? Or are we just ending it all? Or just, yeah, or are we just going to nihilistically kind of go off the rails? And uh, and th- those are very compelling and important questions to ask, it's worth mentioning also in the context of the environment, because this is also a very pointed alleg- allegory about man's destruction of his own environment. And I'm not sure at the end that the movie quite knows whether how blockbustery it wants to be in the answering of those questions and how, how much pessimism and optimism it wants to balance. And I can't say more without giving too much away. Right. I kind of agree that I was glad that it was bringing up all of these issues. You know, it kind of, it did feel like it was kind of tickling a lot of people's funny bone or, or stimulating a lot of people's pleasure areas. Yes, um, and it has lots of laughs, we should say, mixed yeah. in with the action in a way that very few directors can do. And Bong Joon-ho is definitely one of them. His tone can shift really radically and you still feel like you're in the same world, the same movie. Exactly. And there's, you know, for me, there was the violence was too much, there, you know, for a good... I don't know, 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, the axe battle is rough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're somebody who likes, you know, martial arts battle movies, this movie will feed that sense, but it will also, you know, feed your brain to some degree and your your visual sense. Right. And I think for all of it, I mean, maybe for those people who love the action sequences, I had to look away from those. They were too much for me. But there's a lot of just kind of... gives you a little bit of pleasure. But I think if, you know, as far as, say, the, you know, the big topics go, if you really think about them, if you sort of talk them through, they don't really work out. Like, they're there, they're present, there's some suggestion of ideas, but you can't really follow them to any particular conclusion. Right. I mean, like the Chris Evans character, who's the leader of the rebellion, gets gets into all these moral quandaries, especially toward the end, where it's sort of, you know, it's it's a, it's some sort of uh, uh, utopian socialist quandary. Would you throw a baby into a well in order to save a village or something like right. that? And it's not quite clear exactly what the movie wants us to think about what he decides. Yeah, it seems like it wants to stimulate dorm room discussions, but not actually kind of tell us what it thinks. You know, it doesn't necessarily... It's, it's an engine, you know. It doesn't necessarily have a point of view, even though it suggests that we, we should think about these things and talk about these things. But I don't know that it really has a particular conclusion. That said, I mean, that, that's, we're setting our sights as high for this movie as it sets them for itself. And I think people that go and setting them a little bit less high and just wanting to have a great experience in the movie theater will probably have one. Okay, well, the movie is Snowpiercer. It stars Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton. It is definitely getting tongues wagging. You should go see it and tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. June, what do we have? Well, this week we are sponsored by Audible.com. Audible, of course, is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. And they offer more than 150,000 audiobooks, which you can play on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for Culture GabFest listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. You can choose your free book from their vast library, including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. But there's one book that might interest Culturefest listeners in particular and be a nominee for the Culturefest bucket list. Dana. 
Yes, for this week's bucket list audible item, we decided to do something that was related both to our first topic, Snowpiercer, about the world circling train, and also to summer and vacation and things that you listen to while looking mournfully out the windows of trains circling the earth exactly one time per year. And so our recommendation for this week is The Great Railway Bazaar, which is a travel book by Steve, I'm sure you agree, one of the great travel writers of all time, Paul Theroux. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And this one's a classic. So the Great Railway Bazaar just tracks Theroux's journey on by train through essentially the eastern half of the globe. He takes the Orient Express of Agatha Christie fame. He goes through the Khyber Pass by train. He goes all around India. He goes across the Trans-Siberian Railway. And so he sees parts of the world that most of us, sadly, will probably never see and describes them exquisitely well, as well as talking about the history of train travel. So again, this week's bucket list item for Audible, The Great Railway Bazaar by Paul Theroux, read by frequent audiobook reader Frank Mueller, who has also read Moby Dick, Stephen King, Mark Twain. It looks like Frank Mueller has really pretty much read his way through all of the bucket list. <laughs> he's he's uh, the man for the classics. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try today and please use our URL so Audible knows you're a Culture Gabfest listener. Audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Steve, back to you. All right. Thanks, June. All right, moving on. Vicious feels like a BBC comedy of the old, old school, though I should add quickly, it's not actually BBC, it's ITV. Anyhow, it has the comforting rhythm of an old BBC comedy of setup, punchline, setup, punchline, with booming canned laughter and a lot of put-down humor, except the sniping couple at the center of it is gay. Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi star as Freddie and Stuart, who have been together for 50 years. Why don't we listen to a clip? For a moment, I thought those high-pitched, piercing shrieks were coming from a gaggle of schoolgirls. But now I see it's just you. <laughs> I shan't be able to return to sleep now, sex, much less. Well, who do you think you are, the Earl of Grantham? You're from Wigan. It's better than being from Leitenstein. How dare you? <laughs> I've been to Oxford. Yes, for lunch. <laughs> So who were you squawking at on the phone just now? Uh, what? My mother, if you must know. Was she calling to tell you when she'd be dying? <laughs> she was very distraught. Right, did you finally tell her about us? <laughs> I'm waiting for the right time. It's been 48 years. And there has not been a right time. <laughs> no, please don't pressure me. I'm very emotional already. We've had some frightful news. Clive is dead. Your mother is always the first to know when someone dies. Is she getting the news directly from Satan? (laughs) Uh, June, the show has inspired a a wide range of reaction, as you would expect it might. On the one hand, it's a very loving portrayal of pre-post-closet gay men, those who dared to marry even before it was legally sanctioned by the state. On the other hand, you know, some people have said this is a pretty stereotypical, bitter old queen act that McKellen and um, and Jacoby are doing. Uh, where do you fall on this? What do you make of the show? I adore this show. I love that finally we're hearing from bitter old queens. I think that <laughs> these are real people. I think that the test for shows like this and characters that Yes, our stereotypes is whether we know those people, whether we could identify and whether we know exactly. I think we see these characters and we think, oh, my God, Ian has been put onto the television, which is what I thought about my friend Ian. Hello, Ian. I hope you can listen. I hope you can hear this. Um, 
Wait, Sorry. you're friends with Ian McKellen? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, okay. My friend Ian Spriggs, but I will start over with that. Um, I feel like I know who these guys are. I know guys like these men. I find that particularly performative style of cutting each other at every opportunity, of just being vicious with each other, to be very believable, to be quite funny. And you're right, Steve, that this reminded me very much of some old British sitcoms. And at the same time, it also reminded me in a way, showed me how much of that style of humor actually owes so much to that kind of, you know, very gay, kind of very nasty, apparently nasty, actually very loving banter. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I just just because um, Saria McKellen and Sideric Jacobi are getting so much kind of press and so much of the attention for this show, I just want to give a word for Frances de la Tour, who is one of the most brilliant actresses of her or any generation, who, um, weirdly enough, in the 70s, I believe, um, did a show called Rising Damp, where she played a young, plain woman uh, who was sex mad and who was always trying to um, seduce this young man who lived in this flat that she lived in. And I swear... It is almost like it is Miss Jones, who was Frances de Latour's character from Rising Damp, has just kind of grown up and now she's called Violet and she hangs out with Stuart and Freddie. It's it's like this character is the same one. And I asked Gary Gennetti, who I spoke with for a, a slate piece, um, if he had seen the show and he said he hadn't. So it just kind of shows how much both those certain characters are a part of British humour and British society and they're sort of celebrated there in a way that like I the randy lady next door. Yeah, kind of thing. and yeah, and it just you know, not to roam too far from what you asked me, Stephen, but it also is just amazing that we have a show that's basically about really pretty very old people, people in their seventies, maybe their late sixties, with one young man who is in many ways the least interesting person. You know, he's the outsider who's who's maybe trying to break into this group. Um, it's basically just, fantastic. just he kind of exists as a representative of younger hot men to be sort of desired by the by both the male and female characters. Right. I mean I think I would I would find this structure boring after a few shows through, but I I enjoyed it for the wonderful timing and repartee between these two actors who really kind of play it like big, like a stage play. You know, it does feel like a filmed play, but in kind of a pleasing way. And also just because of the extreme cynicism of its view of family life. I mean, the the shows that it reminded me of in terms of its kind of moral genealogy were absolutely fabulous and married with children in a strange way, you know, (laughs) which both have that kind of that very campy, almost commedia dell'arte quality of everyone embodying their stereotypes so thoroughly that they kind of transcend it. Yeah. I mean, there is. It's funny because you you mentioned that repetition. I mean, I think that it is quite a repetitive show. It's a formula show, which you can either see as, you know, a negative or a positive. Um, and I kind of found it quite, you know, Dadaistic or something. You know, the fact that almost every show or maybe every show begins with Stuart having a conversation with his mother. The joke being that he's not out to his mother. Now, I found those conversations among the least funny things in the show. I mean, the show is a series, you know, 22 minutes of uh, as everybody said, set up, joke, laugh, set up, joke, laugh. They were not funny jokes. And yet just the constant presence of this sort of guy in his 70s 
avoiding coming out to his mother just became, you know, the runningness of the joke became My favorite running joke bit. in that sense is about their dog, yes. Bar- Barclay. What's the dog's Balthazar. name? Balthazar. That's right. So they have this 20-year-old dog that sleeps in the kitchen at all times who is just played by a lump under a blanket. <laughs> and this is a great, just old couples, gay or no, right? Just the yeah. joke of the old pet. And they're constantly poking him with a broomstick to see if he's dead yet. Do they have to start mourning or is he still a living hunk of material? Exactly. I love, yeah, all the things about hold him up while he uses the bathroom. Yeah, I absolutely adore Balthazar. Well, I should say I love everything about this show except it. You know, I love Jacoby and I love McKellen. I love that it's about, uh, you know, older people without condescending to them in the least. I mean, how could you get McKellen and Jacoby to play, uh, you know, reductive stereotypes? You couldn't. And even if you handed them scripts that reduce their character to stereotypes, they would transcend that. And in this instance, they do. They're wonderful um, I love that it's about a, a gay couple. I love that it spans from the closet to post-closet. I love the politics of it. I just don't like it. I just don't <laughs> like it. I just It just reminded me of shows that my parents would put on on Friday night on PBS, these really canned British, British sitcoms. Are you being served? Yeah, and from three rooms over, you could hear kind of the mwah-mwah of the dialogue and then the boom, you know, the booming follow-up of of completely um, pre-recorded laugh track laughter. And, you know, Dana, you mentioned Ab Fab, Absolutely Fabulous, which is among my favorite, if not my favorite, British import comedy of all time. And there was, and that followed that formula too, but it was just so the 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 cynicism and the wit and the acidity of it were were you know it was flavored so unusually and so originally um, that I was surprised at how little this show remind reminded me of Ad Ab Fab. But anyway, I'm I'm thrilled that it exists. I don't I suspect I won't watch it again. There are only six episodes, correct, June? There are six episodes in the first season. In Britain, they also made a Christmas special, uh, which I guess we'll see at Christmas uh, here in the U.S. Um, But they they are making a second season, uh, which hasn't yet aired in Britain, but, uh, you know, there will be another one. But, you know, it's it's a sort of classic British situation where they're short. These great classic actors who are in great demand for films and theatre and radio plays in Britain can, you know, just go in and and do a pretty short season. Um, It's really interesting to me how much this is a very gay production. Uh, It's the creator, Gary Gennetti. uh, He kind of took over the idea from Mark Ravenhill, who is um, a wonderful British playwright who just kind of couldn't take it up because he's busy with the RSC. Uh, You know, the music is by Jimmy Somerville. As we've said, the, you know, the main actors, uh, McKellen and Jacoby, are out gay men. Um, it's it, it's a, a really to me that's one of the most exciting things about it because um, I do you know I feel like I know these people I feel like they've been created from you know gay characters and it is interesting as you said Stephen that there has been a a real um, there's there's very little middle ground uh, a lot of people either seem to love it or hate it uh, in the New York Times Gary Janetti compared the response to the show to their response to Marmite, the the British spread that people either love or detest. Um, And I think, and I know that a lot of the people who didn't like it are out gay men who I think are are kind of finding it a little too close to the bone or something. Um, I think the fact that it's kind of about queenie men, it's, it's, you know, there's a little bit of femphobia in some of the negative reaction, I think. But I really recognize those characters and that kind of humor. And I also like that there's love in it, too. June, I have a question for you, which is, 
you know, now in the United States, a sitcom about, or at least featuring in some important respect, a gay character or a gay couple character, it's it's still relatively new, but it's not that new. What about in England? Is this considered at all surprising or shocking or, or what? Well, it's interesting because clearly there have been, uh, you know, sort of gay types of characters and, and very effeminate gay men who have had really very important roles in British culture, leading comedians, people that we recognize very, you know, very much. You know, there's the, the you know, effeminate gay character in Are You Being Served, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But apparently this Vicious was the first show that ITV had done that actually had a gay male couple as the main characters. That clearly there had been gay characters in shows, but this was the first one where they were the center of the show. And that was really kind of surprised me, but um, it was interesting. And it, you know, it wasn't a huge hit in England, but as I said, it was a hit enough to get a second season. So clearly it, it had something that people, you know, responded to. Mm. All right. Well, uh, check out the show. It's called Vicious. It's on PBS. See if you respond to it. And if you do one way or another and you got something to say, come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, moving on. We plan for happiness, but are formed by suffering. So David Brooks told an audience at the Aspen Ideas Festival recently, expanding on a column he had written last March. Let me quote from the column a little bit. He said, quote, when we say that someone is a deep person, we mean they have achieved a quiet, dependable mind by being rooted in something spiritual and permanent. And he went on to say, a person of deep character has certain qualities in the realm of intellect. She has permanent convictions about fundamental things. In the realm of emotions, she has a web of unconditional loves. In the realm of action, she has permanent commitments to transcendent projects that cannot be completed in a single lifetime. Closed quote. David Brooks has started talking about depth uh, in what presumes to be a serious way. Dana, um, presumably we're all in basic accord with what David Brooks is saying. It's better to be deep than shallow. But isn't the first thing that you do if you want to be deep is to not go to anything called an ideas festival? (laughs) Yeah, well, when we said that we were going to talk about this topic, as soon as I heard David Brooks' name, I thought, why are we doing that topic? But to my surprise, this has actually turned into something I do want to talk about. Maybe not so much focusing on, you know, David Brooks and this thing, this idea that he's working on about depth, but, but maybe just somehow the paradoxical imbalance of what we're talking about. Is it possible to sort of issue moral teachings from the pulpit of the Aspen Ideas Festival or the TED Talk or even the New York Times op-ed page? It's funny. It's just it's as if David Brooks, who I think of as sort of a political, social commentator in general on the op-ed page, seems to be wanting to occupy more the space of a teacher, which actually is something that he does, right? He teaches a class at Yale, I think, in in exactly this, how to be deep with David Brooks sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, initially, I guess my my thought would be this is a shallow guide to how to be deep. And if you really want to learn how to be deep, go read the Bible or some great (laughs) literature, you know, like dig into some spiritual traditions instead of listening to David Brooks boil it down for you. But to my surprise, when I actually watched the talk that he gave at the festival, I found it somewhat impressive as a rhetorical performance, much, much better than it works on the page, for sure. And it made me realize that he's probably a pretty lively college professor, that we might not be his audience because we already sort of value ideas, I think, as you know, members of this, this talking community. But he was talking about teaching students at Yale, very, very bright and competitive students who are ready for the global marketplace and who have been trained since birth by his sort of fantasy of the tiger mother. You know, Ugh. This is all part of his bohemian bourgeoisie satire shtick that he's been doing for a dozen years or something. Um, that's all kind of recognizable. But when he sits down and gives the lecture that he sort of gives to his college students, I thought, I wouldn't mind my kid taking a class in, you know, St. Augustine and the stuff that he's talking about. There were great texts he was reading. So 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm on the fence about this. I feel like if David Brooks wants to run along and address the children of the bohemian bourgeoisie about how to be deep, I would rather have him doing that than opining about income inequality on the op-ed page. Hmm. But uh, June, hasn't this always been the balancing act for David Brooks that there's uh, something quite obviously engaging and charming about him and personable? Um, but when you you know lay his ideas out on the page, like you know pin them up like little dead butterflies and examine them dispassionately, they're 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 significantly less charming than the presentation than the messenger. Yeah, I always have this feeling with David Brooks, it's what he doesn't say, you know, that he he, he very artfully, I think, uh, suggests conservative ideas, while at the same time, knowing his audience, which, you know, the, pre- presumably the New York Times core audience is, is much more liberal than he is. And so he kind of, you know, he doesn't lecture you about conservative ideas. He just kind of sneaks them in. And I always kind of feel them just kind of on the edge of the page, you know, trying to, to get at me um, or that he's kind of dog whistling or something. And in this lecture, uh, which I actually read because my internet is terrible. And, and uh, so I, I read it, which I think was probably a, a slightly different experience because some of his jokes, which I knew were jokes because the transcript said laughter. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the vicious laughter. <laughs> exactly. Um, that, you know, I, it would, I just couldn't stop noticing what he wasn't saying. You know, he's sort of talking about the importance of love and the, you know, that we should be less focused on the kinds of success that this big bogeyman that he conjures in this very aggressive way that I kind of hated, the tiger mother, you know, who has this style of success that these young Yaleys are, you know, are about to launch into. And so he sort of contra- contrasts that with, you know, the the life of the spirit or something. But it doesn't talk about politics. He didn't talk about kind of why the, the American sort of the, the American way of individualism you know, denigrates the communal experience, that everything that frankly, I find a little troubling about America and challenging the fact that we really don't share things like health care, that we don't, you know, that the, the tiger mother is all about getting her kid into Yale, which means that your kid won't. We're not really trying to elevate everyone. We're trying to, you know, help our own families, help ourselves. And I just kind of wish that he would have addressed that whole notion of, you know what, maybe if we weren't just trying to, um, you know, prioritize our own success and if we're trying to help everyone and raise you know raise all the boats we might be a better society and so well, was, i feel like he would subscribe to that in the abstract but as soon as that started to be about you know i don't know means testing or something you know he might change his tune right which is exactly i think what david brooks you know t- is to me the the thing that m- makes me crazy about him that he sneaks by an idea that i actually think hmm, brooks you might be onto something and then he trojan horses exactly. in some kind of big social policy exactly. right yeah yeah june i thought that was beautifully said. Um, So I want to start out uh, um, somewhat unpredictably being positive about it. On the plus side, I take him at his word when he says that this isn't self-help. You know, the trick to self-help is to enumerate something that appears to be a completely non-instrumental value or value system and then kind of turn it and make it suddenly instrumental. So you tell people to be mindful or contemplative or, you know, Buddhist or on and on and on. And then you kind of flip it and switch it, and that shows them how to be a better middle manager or entrepreneur. It doesn't seem to me he's doing the flip. He's not setting this up for the flip so that so that you can, you know, 
instrumentalize or or operationalize this language of depth in such a way that you'll be a better uh, knowledge worker. And I admire that. I'm gl- I'm glad that he doesn't appear to be doing that. Um, I also like the fact that it's not it's it, the, especially in the original column. It's avowedly anti uh, evolutionary and socio biological. By which I don't mean, and Brooks doesn't mean that we're not you know, uh, biologically rooted creatures we are, and we're derived from natural selection. We are only, as Brooks says, this is not and cannot be a comprehensive explanation for who we ultimately are, which I'm I'm glad. I'm glad to see someone who's otherwise culturally and politically conservative admit that uh, Darwinism isn't a fully explanatory, uh, you know, belief system for who we are and what we want. Here's what I don't like about it. Um, the great uh, British philosopher Gilbert Ryle wrote a great book called, the Th- I think it's called The Theory of Mind, uh, or Concept of Mind, I think is actually what it's called. Um, and in it, he has this wonderful aside in which he says, the vain man does not think he is vain. And what he's Ryle is getting at is that our self-descriptions are almost by definition at odds with who, who we are, that what we say about ourselves is almost always inevitably false. Uh, and in fact, all of literature, all of the you know literature of depth that David Brooks is uh, alluding to, fancifully and fancifully alluding to, derives from the fact that speech acts are at odds with actual actions. That's where we get comedy, and that's also where we get tragedy from. So, you know, they're the the group of descriptors that I always think act as prima facie evidence that the person using them to describe themselves isn't that. And uh, I would say that you can't really call call yourself witty, and you certainly can't call yourself modest. To that, I would add deep. You you just can't call yourself deep without sounding uh, like it's opposite, just sounding like a completely shallow Like Stuart Smalley. Absolutely. Um, And the final thing I'll add is that, you know, for at least 30 years now, people have been wondering what the boomers are going to sound like uh, as they start to age. And we're getting a taste of it now. And, you know, this is this is, among other things, this is an anti-youth culture screed. It's a senior culture uh, screed. It's a plea for taking people who have accumulated selfhood over long stretches of time uh, and therefore have a certain depth or or gravitas or wisdom. It's a plea to take them more seriously than my, uh, Miley Cyrus at Al. And, uh, you know, right on time, here they come. I mean, the boomers are starting to hit their 60s. They're starting to retire uh, in great waves. And we're going to hear more of this. We're going to hear more about how um, uh, the culture of shallowness that the boomers foisted on all of us uh, is uh, is how horrible it is and how now we ought to take uh, uh, old people seriously now that they're old. And, you know, I, have to, I think that's definitely present, even though uh, David Brooks is only 52. He's at the very tail end of boomerdom. Um, but I do wish that he would listen to young people. I mean, again, the my biggest problem with this whole speech was the notion that young people are doing something wrong, that they're just, you know, they're they're striving too hard, that they're focusing too much on on getting jobs, on resume values when God knows they need to because if they don't have a good resume, they can't get a job that comes with insurance. And if you have, you know, good values, that doesn't get you a seat in a dentist chair. You know, like 52-year-olds need to understand why 18-year-old Yale students might be 
pretty interested in getting some resume values. You're sort of making me realize, June, that even though he is addressing his own class here, and that's maybe why this is less offensive to me, it's not David Brooks talking about the inner city and how we're going to fix it, but you're making me realize that he's applying some of the same bootstraps philosophy, right? The problem isn't that you're graduating into this horrible, shitty economy that leaves you you actually no opportunity to to rise. It's that, you know, you haven't pulled yourself up by your literary bootstraps and read your Augustine. Right. And I mean, really, it's not the Yale students that we need to worry about. It's those people who, you know, are in community colleges and can't get enough credits to graduate and all of that. Maybe that's why I can't get up in arms about this. I feel like if David Brooks wants to use his intellect and his charm to teach a bunch of privileged Yale students to be a little bit nicer and not so rat racy, then more power to him. I just, you know, it's true, though, that I'm much more like David Brooks in many ways than those Yale students. And yet my sympathy is with the Yale students. I would like to know what those people who were in that class and were being talked about in this in this public way, even though he was quite flattering about them. He was also a little bit snotty and kind of essentially saying that they had no souls. It was kind of double-edged. He said, you yeah. know, I loved working with students at Yale. It was such an honor. What a wonderful university. And I got so much out of it. But here's a contemptuous rant about right. how dumb they all were. They have no souls. So, you know, I just, I don't know why it's setting me off so, but I found, again, maybe because I read it rather than listen to it and hearing the way that he delivered his one-liners, uh, I just wish that he just had a little more understanding of what they're facing uh, as young people today. I mean, setting aside the politics of it is just a little rich for this guy who's made his entire career uh, out of, you know, making glib pronouncements and, you know, uh, turning serious subjects into pop sociology to get up and, t- you know, tell these kids that profundity is, is, is the virtue that they are missing. And, you know, it, it ought to, if, they, if anyone gets told that, well, first of all, to make it through four years of Yale University without having seen at least a half dozen professors who uh, young, both young um, and old, I would hope, who who actually embody what David Brooks is uh, promoting as a virtue, who themselves, having committed themselves uh, to deep learning and deep scholarship and deep thinking, are just standing before you in the lecture hall, just are self-evidently deep and thoughtful uh, people, you know, uh, that ought to be enough to convince Yale students that there's an alternative to being a glib self-seller, you know, in the, in the global knowledge marketplace. And the idea that right at the end of four years or, or somewhere in the, in the, in the, in these four years, someone who's really made his career being glib, a glib pseudo sociologist is going to get up and just say the words effectively. I mean, with almost no more thought behind it than than my caricature, but really getting up and saying being deep is better than being shallow. I mean, that the, the, the most terrifying thing in all of this is that is that there are enough Yale students who are willing to spend a portion of their higher education sitting there and listening to it. And by the way, they're all in that classroom because they want to jet up the career ladder in the same way that Dave, David Brooks did. They're there for his celebrity. This is just the whole thing is now it's starting to set me off too. <laughs> He's going off the deep end now. No, I just want my response to what you just said, Stephen, is not to actually use words, but just to make like big applause sounds. <laughs> I'm just going to flail my arms frantically like pelican wings. <laughs> All right. Well, those of our listeners who still want to check out the original column that Brooks wrote called The Deepest Self back in March 2014, it's uh, on the New York Times website. We'll link to it. And then there was a recap of his Aspen Ideas Festival speech in the Atlantic Monthly, David Brooks's Five-Step Guide to Being Deep, a Manifesto Against America's Happiness and Resume Cultures. We'll link to that as well. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? Well, Steve, I'm going to go you one better with the local endorsements that sometimes drive our listeners crazy, where you have to get ice cream at one place in Vermont and you have to get pizza at one place in Woodstock, New York. So I'm going to take us even farther afield for our global listeners and endorse a tour guide in Guanajuato, Mexico, <laughs> who I who I met this past week when I was on vacation in Mexico with my family. So I feel like this guy really deserves the plug because it was without a doubt the most enriching cultural experience I had last week while on vacation. So um, the guy's name is Albert Coffey, spelled like the drink, and, uh, and he's an archaeologist who was part of the dig on this pyramid in Mexico that he took us on a tour of that was only explored. I think it was known by, by natives that it was there, but it has only been uncovered in the past 15 years or so. I think it was dug up in the late 90s. And he was one of the archaeologists on that original dig. He bills himself in his promotional material as the real Indiana Jones. And I swear it is not an oversell. It is like going on a tour of a pyramid site with with Indy himself, straw hat and all. And this guy is incredibly knowledgeable about archaeology and about the cultures of the area and about the botanical life in the area and just everything that has to do with this this dig site. And he's also an incredible raconteur and storyteller and just funny and just one of those tour guides who was kind of a performance artist at the same time and just kind of structured this whole afternoon perfectly so that at every part of the drive and the walk, we were learning something else about the site and the history and the culture. It was fantastic. So um, if you're ever in Guanajuato, Mexico, a state in central Mexico, and you want to learn something about one of the most interesting Mesoamerican sites in the world right now, because they're still in the process of discovering stuff every day, then go to CoyoteCanyonAdventures.com and look up Albert Coffey and have him take you on a tour of the Cañada de la Virgen Pyramid in Mexico. June, what do you have? I want to endorse a really lovely novel called These Things Happen. It's by Richard Kramer, who's a longtime TV writer. He was worked on 30-something, among other great shows. And this is a novel based in New York. And to me, it's kind of a not a post-gay novel because we're not post-gay, but it's kind of what happens after we just kind of we, we stop hating and we say that we fully embrace gay people and gay family members. And when something happens and that's kind of challenged and we, you know, as they say on Real World, what happens when people stop being polite and get real? Um, and it's a very fun, funny novel about, you know, a sort of a two young, you know, high schoolers uh, or one young high schooler, his best friend who comes out as gay, um, the high schooler's dad who's gay, his dad's boyfriend, his mom and her husband. It's just kind of a, you know, what happened next kind of story. It's it's a very wonderful evocation of New York. It's beautifully written. It's funny. Um, and it also just has very interesting ideas. So this, these things happen by Richard Kramer. Alrighty. All right. Well, we had uh, previously, I think uh, it wasn't last show, maybe a couple shows ago, we were talking about uh, Paul Simon and lesser known Paul Simon albums and tracks. And I've always been a huge fan of Hearts and Bones. I think it's the album that he came out with right before Graceland. And and in fact, I think Hearts and Bones is his least and may still be his least successful uh, studio album uh, ever. It's so unjust. It's a gentle thoughtful, sweet, dare I say, deep uh, record, deeply felt record. It's a really nice record. It's probably my favorite solo album of his. And on it is a song called Renee and Georgette Magritte with their dog after the war. Let me hasten to say I've always had a suspicion about Paul Simon that maybe he was the editor of my high school lit magazine or something. You know, like he, he just he just gives off so much the same vibe as the people who in high school were the literary kids. You know, so he has a little bit of that vibe. However, he's also, you know, a 
a gorgeous and almost bottomlessly gifted songwriter. This is such the the pretentious title aside. It is such a sweet little ditty, and it has this amazing conceit. I wonder if it's based in fact at all, which is that you know you you get these little vignettes of Renee and Georgette McGreed, who I assume my, uh, emigrated to the United States during the war, as many many artists did. Many surrealist artists, most famously, did Max Ernst uh, uh, among them. But anyway, they're they're in the United States and they're sort of marveling at the affluence and the ease of their lives. And then when they when they get alone, they dance to these old, I guess, kind of 1940s or 1950s doo-wop or, or rock bands, which Paul Simon then enumerates one by one, the Penguins, the Moon Glows, uh, on and on and on and on. And, and it's just, it's just one of those utterly magic moments in a song where the narrative of the song, the melody of the song, the lyrics of the song, the rhythm of the words, the whole thing really comes together. And and there's something about this surrealist artist and his wife dancing to these paradigmatically American uh, rock and roll acts. It's, it's exquisite. It's a great song. Check it out. All righty. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. June, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and June Thomas, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Renee and Georgia McGreed with their dog after the war Return to their hotel suite And they unlock the door Easily losing their evening clothes They dance by the light of the moon 